Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. And I am so happy to be here this morning. If you don't know, I had COVID for about two weeks. Um, pretty decent case. So two weeks ago on a Sunday, I was uh, under a pile of blankets in bed, shivering in a, with a fever. And then last Sunday, I was still in bed under far fewer blankets, but I was uh, extremely fatigued and dealing with headaches and things. So uh, tested uh, negative just the other day. And I am very happy to be able to come in and uh, at the end of the week and record this online service. Uh, we are starting next week, so the Sunday after 4th of July, uh, we will be starting uh, our church in the field for about a month. And what we do is we have lawn chair church. You bring a lawn chair, a beach blanket, whatever you want. We have some pop-up tents that we put out. We have a real chill outdoor service for about a month. Uh, and the reason we do that is, is uh, it's warm enough in July, but it's not like crazy hot like it can get in August. So that's what we, uh, that's what we do, and we'll be starting that. And so uh, I know there's some people that you know, don't feel comfortable coming to an indoor service just yet, and that's fine. Uh, but an outdoor service, uh, you know, with COVID and everything, it's, it's a lot safer. Uh, I don't recommend getting COVID. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with that. Um, and you might even hear it in my voice. I'm still very, uh, I feel tired um, and there's still stuff I'm dealing with. So anyway, that's where we're at. Uh, we're gonna continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. The original title for this morning's sermon for a long time. Uh, if you don't know, I, I kind of map out where we're going about six months to a year in advance, and then as we get closer, I sort of tighten things up. Um, but the original title for this sermon for a long time was, Why is the Church So Messed Up? And uh, the revised title is just Messy Church. Uh, the sub subheading, though, is Why the Church is So Messed Up and So Wonderful. Uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 58, but we're actually going to start at the end of the passage, verse 53. Matthew chapter 13, verse 53 says, when Jesus had finished these parables, so all of the teachings that we're going to look at this morning, plus the ones we looked at a couple weeks ago with the parable of the sower. He says, when he had finished these parables, he moved on from there and coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people at their synagogue and they were amazed. So he comes to Nazareth, his hometown. Uh, it's where his parents are from. It's where he grew up after his uh, time in, in Bethlehem as a, as a young toddler and, and his time in exile in Egypt. They come back. He grew up in Nazareth. He returns there and he began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother named Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And when he did not, and he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. How do we see Jesus? In verse 54, it says that the people of Nazareth are amazed at him, but they don't accept him. It also says in verse 54 that they acknowledge him. They say he has this wisdom and this miraculous power. They acknowledge that Jesus is a teacher full of wisdom and that the power of God seems to be flowing through him. But they don't surrender to him. They don't place faith in him. 
You know, Jesus gave a really hard teaching once and a bunch of people bailed because they couldn't accept it. And he turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to go too? And Peter, speaking for the group, says, Lord, where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. The crowd in his hometown acknowledged him and they were amazed by him, but they didn't accept him. They didn't surrender to him. And then they say, I mean, this is just the carpenter's son thinking that Joseph was his earthly you know, father, even though he was just his foster father. His mother's Mary, who still lives here. We, we know his brothers. We know his sisters. How could he be anything important? Familiarity actually created offense. The idea that this hometown kid, this kid who wasn't anything special to them in their eyes, now has the power of God working through him and has these, this teaching full of wisdom and that familiarity created offense on their part. You know, for the Pharisees, the offense at Jesus was that he wasn't religious enough. For uh, when the church spreads out of Israel and goes among the Gentiles, the offense at the message of Jesus is that he is bringing the message of the holiness of God. And so this idea that they have to forsake their idolatry or their immorality or whatever. What? I have, to, I have to repent and change my ways to follow God? So to the irreligious, Jesus is offensive because he brings the, the righteousness of God. To the religious, Jesus is offensive because he brings the grace and the love and the mercy of God. I don't have to keep all these rules for God to love me. But to his hometown, the offense is actually the familiarity. I want to say this, there are, there's a whole segment, there's a whole demographic in our community and in communities across our country, but in our community, there is a whole demographic of people who grew up in the church, in the faith, whatever you want to call it, and they have a familiarity with Jesus. They, oh, I know Jesus. I went to summer camp. I went to vacation Bible school. I, I did the, the church midweek, you know, Wednesday night church Christian kids club. I've, I went through confirmation. I did these things. And in doing so, we have this familiarity with Jesus. And there are people who, if you ask them, are you a Christian? They say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. But they might acknowledge God, but have not surrendered to him. They might have experienced amazement, like maybe they went to that church summer camp, they went to some meeting, they went to an evangelistic outreach, they went on a mission trip, and they saw the power of God displayed. They've seen someone healed, they've seen someone delivered, they've seen a life changed, so they have amazement at the power of God, or they have acknowledgement of God. Oh, I believe in God, sure. But they haven't surrendered, and they haven't accepted and that familiarity breeds offense because then when somebody says, you say you believe in Jesus, but you don't live as his follower, that becomes offensive. Who are you to judge me? Who are you to tell me anything? Well, I'm nobody. All I do is bring, this is what the Bible says, as best as I understand it. But how we see Jesus determines everything else we're going to talk about. 
Because if my default position is to rest on my own wisdom, on my own experience, on my own opinion, then that will always be king. And Jesus cannot be king in that situation. But if I live in surrender and acknowledgement and I say, Jesus is Lord and I am not, then that will bring us to a place of humble repentance. Let me put it to you this way. I I told somebody this recently, and I think this is true. We have these ideas of good and bad in our culture. These are the good people. These are the bad people. And if you are in this camp, then you're good. And if you're in that camp, you're bad. And that doesn't mean that you think that everybody in your camp is perfect, but you say, you know, nobody's perfect, but this is the right way. And the people over there, they're living in the bad way. And, And we have that, right? This division, old and young, right and left. We've talked about this a bunch. But what happens is if you start to see things like this, then when something from the Bible, when something from the Christian faith challenges your position, you say, no, I don't, I don't think that's true. And our preference, our opinion, our experience then dominates over Jesus. And that familiarity that we have breeds contempt. There, there are people I know that if I went to their church and I taught the word of God for a month, I just started teaching the Bible for like a month, they would not want me to stay because they don't like those parts of the Bible. And if I went to a different church, totally opposite point of view and camp or whatever, and I taught the Bible for a month, they wouldn't want me to stay. And I'm not saying that I've got it all figured out, but I believe this. One of the things that Faith on Hill is trying to be is a church that is of the kingdom of heaven not of the kingdoms of this world, neither right nor left, neither old nor young, but the kingdom of heaven, followers of Jesus, walking in the way of Jesus. And if my default position is whatever Jesus says, that's what I will do, then I've put him in the driver's seat. The throne of my life is occupied by God and not by me. Does that mean that my life and my faith isn't informed by experience or reason? Of course it doesn't. I I can look and I can see, I can try to figure stuff out and I can say I have the word of God. I have the Holy Spirit in me. I have the Christian community around me. I have experience. I have history. I have tradition. All of those things can speak into it. But who's in the driver's seat? Who's on the throne? Where's the foundation? These people would not accept the teachings of Jesus because of familiarity. The religious leaders would not accept the teachings of Jesus because there was too much love and grace and mercy. The irreligious people have a hard time with the teachings of Jesus because there is too much righteousness and holiness. How do you see Jesus? And let me suggest that part of the reason why the church is so messy right now in America is because of how we see Jesus. There are incredibly religious people who we might identify as the Pharisees that we've talked about so much as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew. And yes, they may be called a church, but as you hear them live and speak and you observe what's going on, you say, I think you look more like the Pharisees in the Gospels than you do like the disciples in the Gospels. There are others around us who seem to be like, you know, the church in Corinth, you know, you read the, the book of 1 Corinthians and the Apostle Paul writes to them and says, hey, th- there's sins going on in your church 
that not even the heathens do. So what he's saying is unbelievers were looking at the church in Corinth and going, ooh, you guys are messed up. And quite honestly, there are parts of the church in America right now where the world's looking and going, oof, that's messed up. And then there's parts of the church in America right now that are like the Pharisees. And you might remember, we studied the, the letters of John, the apostle, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John last year. And one of the letters he writes to a guy in a church where the church leader had become like a Pharisee, a, relig- a cult leader. He was saying, don't listen to anyone else. Only listen to me. I'm in charge. And John writes to him and says, hey, you just keep doing the things that God has called you to do. You continue to live in the righteousness of God, in the love of God, in the mercy of God, in the holiness of God. You keep doing those things. I'm going to come down there and deal with this guy. And then there's the church that's just so familiar, they act as if, you know, well, who's Jesus? You know, we're just going to live our own life. So why is the church so messy right now? I think it's because we're seeing all of these things at once. Sometimes in church history, there's like one thing that kind of rears its head and there's a lot of like legalism, religiosity, uh, that sort of, you know, Pharisee kind of attitude. Sometimes in church history, uh, there's a lot of uh, immorality, worldliness, secularism, whatever you want to call it. And sometimes there's this familiarity, but right now we got all three going on. And Jesus is going to teach the people in parables about how he sees the church, how he sees the kingdom of heaven. And he's going to explain why it's messy. But the reason I started at the end is to establish this. How we see Jesus will determine how we respond to him. Because the people in Nazareth heard the same teachings that we are going to hear. And because they just saw him as, oh, he's just, you know, he's just Jesus, you know. They had this familiarity with him, but they didn't have acceptance. They didn't have surrender. And because of that, they just said, our experience, our opinion is more important. If we see Jesus as Lord, then we will hear this, we will receive this, and we will live in it. If we see Jesus as, oh, you know, he's Jesus. He's the son of God, or he's a good teacher. Uh, You know, we pray to him, but you know, I'm, I'm the captain of my ship. Then we'll be part of creating the mess. So what does Jesus say about the church? Well, let's go back to verse 24, chapter 13. It says, Jesus told them another parable. Remember, a parable is a story that teaches a point or teaches a lesson. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? And Jesus answered, No. Or the master answered, No. Because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles and to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Jesus is saying, remember a couple weeks ago when we looked at the sower, you know, the sower scatters the seed and the, the kingdom of heaven is the seed in the good soil that bears fruit. But then there's weeds that come up and they're in among the wheat. 
And Jesus is saying, hey, the kingdom of heaven, as long as it's on earth, the kingdom of heaven is this idea that is already happening and has not yet happened. The kingdom of heaven is here now and it is still coming. So the kingdom of heaven is expressed in the life of every believer, every soul who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ through his death and his resurrection, every person who has had their sins removed and forgiven and they now live in that surrendered life to Jesus. And yet there are people within the church walls who haven't had that happen to them. We've talked about this a bit in the last month or two, that there's this organization called the church, and then there is the organic thing called the church. And sometimes they're the same thing, but oftentimes they're not. Something could be called, you know, first church of this town and just be a social club. And then there could be, you know, some church over on the other side of town that is the expression of the kingdom of heaven within that community. Jesus said there's weeds among the wheat. That's why I I don't put a lot of stock into confirmation, Bible quizzing, church membership, although they can have their value in their place. Because somebody could get all the answers right. I'm going to memorize a few Bible verses. I'm going to learn some Bible facts. And then I can live within the general social constructs of being a Christian. And yet not have faith. There are weeds among the wheat. Why is the church so messy? Because the church is made up of people who may not actually be Christians. The organization called the church may have people and may be full of a lot of people who aren't actually saved. Now that's on top of people who are saved. But we are saved, does that mean we're perfect? No, we talk about this all the time. So let's say that you had a church that was only full of true believers, people who have been genuinely saved by faith in Jesus Christ. What would that look like? It would still not be perfect. It would still have problems and it would still have issues because we are all being made like Jesus. We're not like Jesus fully yet. And so if you had a church that was only believers, that it would still have its problems because you'd have somebody who's God's still working on them and they aren't perfect and they have issues. But then if you add to the mix somebody who isn't letting God work on them, somebody who is a faker, somebody who is a weed among the wheat, that's just going to make the issues go tenfold, twentyfold, thirtyfold. And you're going to have all kinds of mess. The church is messy because among the church there will be false believers. And then in verse 31, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows, it becomes the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into uh, about 60 pounds of flour, and she worked it through all the dough. Then Jesus spoke all these things uh, to the crowd in parables, and he did not say anything to them without using parables, so that it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. So Jesus gives two more examples. 
compares the church to a mustard seed. Now, this is a hard one for us to understand, and here's why. Because we're not 100% sure what mustard seed Jesus is talking about. There are different kinds of mustard plants. Uh, When I lived in California, one of my favorite times of year was in the late winter to spring, and uh, the vineyards in the area we lived in, they planted mustard as ground cover. And so in the spring, these little mustard plants would grow up and you would see them all in the rows of the vineyards and it's just beautiful. And the reason is that it gave ground cover during the late winter, early spring rains, so it helps prevent erosion, but also that those plants have a good effect on the soil so that when they die out in the summer and then over the summer into the fall, when the grapes are harvested, The soil is better for having the mustard in it, and then the grapes grow stronger, and then they're harvested in the fall, and the cycle continues. But then there are also mustard plants that do grow into more like trees. So what's Jesus talking about? We're not 100% clear. But even mustard trees don't grow so big and so large as what Jesus is describing. I don't claim to have perfect understanding on this, but I'll give you the best that I can come to having read Bible scholars and commentaries and prayed and all of that. Whatever thing Jesus is talking about, he's giving them an idea that the kingdom of heaven starts small. One person places their faith in Jesus and then a family places their faith in Jesus and a community places their faith in Jesus. You know, I'm many things, right? Like my family tree is all over the map, literally. And then there's a whole part of my family tree that's mysterious because we don't know anything really about my mom's dad. And so there's like this whole other part of our family tree that we're like, who knows where any of that's from? And so my family tree is mysterious, but it's all over the map. But one thing we're pretty sure is that I'm not Jewish. And so this idea of... um, it growing huge, but starting small, I think of Cornelius. Cornelius was the first non-Jewish person in the Bible to become a Christian. One guy becomes a Christian, and his family, they become Christians. And then it spreads so that people like me all over the world follow Jesus with one man, one family, and it spreads. And we see this all the time. I remember in 1998, I went to Russia, And it's not popular to talk about Russia right now because Putin's being a knucklehead. But I was in Russia, and while we were there, we were in, I was in three cities. I did ministry in three cities while I was there. And we did ministry in this one city called Nizhny Novgorod. And while we were there, a young man who had become a Christian while at university in Nizhny was heading back home to his town. And we gave him a ride to the train station so he could move back home. And we had some people from the church there, and we were there, and we were praying for him as he went because there was no uh, vibrant church in his city. Again, there was an organizational church. Was it the actual church of Jesus? And so he said, can you just pray that God would increase the gospel work in my city? And we did. And when we came back to America, somebody from uh, one of the churches that had gone heard about this young man and what's going on, and he prayed, and his family moved to that city, and they started a church there. But here's one young man 
who becomes a Christian while he's in university in this other city. He goes back home, prays that God would send other believers and increase the work there. And somebody comes and they start the church and the work increases. So what Jesus is saying is the church, the kingdom of heaven starts small and it grows big. But then it grows so big, he says, that the birds of the air come and find rest in it. Now, who are the birds? The, the, the birds as a metaphor throughout the gospels and the parables and, and throughout other places of scripture, the birds of the air usually represent sin or evil. Generally speaking, if you look at biblical typology, birds represent evil. Now, is Jesus saying that the birds of the air come and find rest in that mustard tree? Meaning sinners like you and me, we were sinners, rebellious to God, enemies of God, but yet we came and we found rest. We came and found rest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, my wife's a convert. She didn't grow up in a Christian family. She became a Christian and then she became a Christian and her mom and brothers became a Christian and it spread, right? But she was saying how people talk about the church as being so messed up. But for her and her experience, she came and she found rest. She came and found rest from a family that was full of trauma and dysfunction. And Jesus brought hope and healing. And the church was a, a place of, of strength and power for her. And the birds of the air came and found rest. So either this is talking about sinners like you and me coming and finding rest in the kingdom of heaven. I think that's very possible. Or it's saying that the kingdom of heaven expands and it's large. But yet while here on earth, the birds of the air come in. And speaking of people, like we said, the weeds among the wheat, it could be that Jesus is reinforcing this idea. I think whatever's happening, whether it's the birds that are coming to find rest, people who are becoming Christians, or it's false people coming into the church, birds make a mess. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, what, what's going on here. Birds make a mess. And so it, I think this is just Jesus teaching, hey, there's going to be a mess in the church. If you're looking for a perfect church, you will not find it. If you're looking for a church that will fix all your problems, you will fail in that search. I grew up in a group of churches that um, the Lord used and, and still uses, I believe. But there was issues in the 2000s as I was starting to pastor in that group of churches. There were issues going on uh, nationwide. And so there were some people who says, well, maybe what we should do is we should join this other group because they seem to have figured out all the problems. So let's go with them. And a few did. And within five years, that other group was dealing with some of the same problems that the group I grew up in did. And then somebody else, a bunch of them a few years ago said, hey, we're going to go join this other group. And now that other group is dealing with problems even worse than the one that the group I grew up in did. Here's what I'm saying is there's, there's no perfect church. There's no church that will solve all the answers. And whether it's the birds of the air coming and becoming Christians or the birds equals false believers or it's both, birds make a mess. People make a mess. The church is messy because it's made up of people. Jesus says, hey, the, the kingdom of heaven is, is, is the work of God. But you know what? It doesn't take much. Just a little bit of leaven. You put a little bit of leaven into a dough and it spreads throughout the whole dough. It doesn't matter how much, you know, you could put like, what does he say? Like 30 pounds of dough. And, and he says, uh, 
Yeah, 60 pounds, 60 pounds of dough. You just put a little bit of leaven, you work it in, and it goes through the whole thing, even though it's this huge thing of dough. And he's explaining to them like, hey, this is the kingdom of heaven, and it's supernatural, and it's amazing, and it's better. But it's already and it's not yet. And until the end of things, when Jesus returns and establishes his rule and reign, the church is made of people. And it's going to be full of problems. You know, I was talking to a friend this last week. And he said, hey, I'm thinking about coming back to church. I said, that's great. But understand that the church is just people with problems. Come back to Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. Now, how does Jesus see the church? I asked at the beginning, how do we see Jesus? And then we acknowledge, hey, the church is messy. Jesus is the one that told us that the church is going to be messy. But how does Jesus see the church? Well, in verse 44, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. I've heard and read stories about people who are out for a hike uh, and they're, they're on like a, you know, a, a public land and they, they discover some gold or something in a creek and they realize that if there's gold in this part of the creek, upstream on private land, there's probably more. And so they go and they say, what do I have to do to buy this land? And they go and they get it so that they can get the gold. I've never had anything like that in my own life. But you know, as somebody who's... Um, who has over the years flipped uh, guitar gear on Craigslist and other places, there have been times where I have seen something listed on eBay or Craigslist and go, oh man, I want that. Because it is, you know, some, maybe it's like a, a oddity or something about it makes it more desirable than the average version of that uh, piece of gear. And so I'll go, hey, I'll buy it, thank you very much, pay their asking price, and then I can turn around and make, you know, a hundred bucks on it or something. Uh, the idea that Jesus is getting at is the kingdom of heaven is a treasure hidden in a field. And it's so valuable that this man who finds it will sell everything he owns to get this treasure because it's worth so much more than everything he owns. He's like, people are like, you're crazy. And he's like, no, I know what I have found. The kingdom of heaven is like somebody who goes to the goodwill. That's what, if Jesus was teaching this today, that's what he'd say. The kingdom of heaven is like somebody who goes to the goodwill and finds an incredible treasure and does everything he can to get it. Jesus sees the church as a treasure. Jesus sees the church as a treasure. Jesus sees the church as a treasure. And if we miss that, we miss a whole lot. It is popular right now to rag and rip on the church. And let me tell you, there's nobody who understands that better than I do. You, you want to say, I've got scars from being in the church. I'll show you my scars. Because the church is full of people and people are messy and people can hurt you. But Jesus died for the church. He sees it as a treasure worth getting. It says that the, the person who's found the treasure sold everything so that they could get the treasure. Jesus gave everything. He lowered himself. He left his divine place in heaven and became a man and then he died unjustly for crimes he did not commit so that my sin and your sin could be forgiven 
through his death, paying the price for my sin. That's how valuable Jesus sees the church. That's how valuable it is. And then he says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full of fish, the the fishermen pulled it up to the shore and they sat down and they collected the good fish in the baskets, but threw the bad away. And this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. And he said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So again, there's this idea that, you know what? God's going to settle things at the end of the age. On the day of judgment, God knows who is his and who is not his. God knows who a true believer is and who a false believer is. And I'm going to trust him for that. I don't go around trying to figure out who the true believers are and who the false believers are. I guarantee there are people that have fooled me. But they haven't fooled God. Jesus views the church as a treasure worth having. Jesus is going to figure out and separate the good from the bad. He'll know who are his and who are not. But you might say, well, okay, so... At the end, you know, we said earlier, like the familiarity that they had with Jesus was the division. You know, the people in Nazareth, when Jesus was teaching them, they rejected him. And Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except for his own town, which means, hey, you know what? I go to these other towns and they accept me. But in my own town, because of your familiarity, you reject me. So somebody might say, hey, is it worth growing up in the church then? Maybe like no kid should grow up in the church and then they can come if they want. But what Jesus actually says is there's an advantage. It's like somebody who goes into their their shed, their storeroom, and then they bring out new treasures as well as old. Meaning, if you grew up in the faith, but then you, on your own, came to your own surrender, you have been given all of these old treasures. You've been given the, the stories and the truths before you had faith. And so now you can hit the ground running with it. You have these old treasures, and then as you come to faith, you have these new treasures. There is advantage growing up in the church. I firmly believe that. I firmly believe that there is advantage to growing up in the church and then becoming a Christian. Jesus died for the church and his death gives the church its value. I believe that the church is worth fighting for and standing with. There is a reason why after literally decades of being a Christian and and now I'm, I'm over 20 years of teaching the Bible and doing ministry why I still care about the church, why I think it's worth fighting for, why I think it's worth standing with. And there are times where it's like, do I really want to be associated? And I say, you know what? Jesus wants to be associated with the church. And if Jesus wants to be associated with, then I want to be associated with. There are times where you say, is this really worth the fight and the effort? But if Jesus died for the church, then what am I going to do? It's really popular right now. It's really trendy to rip on the church. But Jesus loves the church. And that's where I want to be. You know, I'm going to be honest. It is tough sometimes to have fellowship and community with other churches because maybe they're doing things or saying things that I'm like, oof, that's awkward. But Jesus loves them. And they're his. And so I will not reject them either. And there are times where there are other believers and you go, I don't know if I want to be associated with them. But Jesus is associated with them. 
So who am I to do any less? The church is messy because people are messy. But it is worth standing with and fighting for because Jesus has given it its value. And if Jesus thinks something is worth it, then it is. Where do we go from here? If you are a believer, if you have a true saving faith in Jesus, the invitation is to be where Jesus is and Jesus is with his church. Now, again, I said there's an organization called the church and there's this organic thing called the church and sometimes they're the same thing and sometimes they're not. I understand that. Start with the organic thing. But let's not abandon the organizational thing either. God's a God of organization. And so I want to stand with his church. And and if you're not part of a church, then I'm inviting you to be part of a church. And I have this standing offer. I'm not interested in just getting people to come to our church. I'm getting people interested in getting people connected with the church of Jesus. So I will talk with anybody and kind of say, hey, okay, what's, where are you at? You know, where are you at in your, your faith, your personality, all these things. And I, if Faith on Hill is a good fit for you, then I'd love to have you be part of what we're doing. But if we're not, let me help you find a church that would be a good fit for you. For the unbelievers, I'll say this. You may look at the church and see all the problems, and you're not going to get a lot of argument from me. But I look at the church and see people that Jesus is saving. See, somebody had a great tweet recently, I saw this, and they said, for all the problems in the church, it's nothing compared to the problems of the world around us. I couldn't disagree. For all the problems of the church, and by the church I mean the organic thing, the kingdom of heaven, and there are problems, it's nothing compared to the world around us. And I would rather be where Jesus is than anywhere else. So this is the invitation to be where Jesus is. The church is messy. The church has issues. But Jesus is there fighting for the church, standing with the church, working in the church. And that's where I want to be. God bless you. If you have any questions, pushback, whatever, adam at faithonhill.com is my email. Love to hear from you. We'll see you next week. And we'll see you, uh, you can also check out our podcasts and our different stuff at Faith on Hill on social media. Uh, Search Faith on Hill on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We'd love to hear from you. Have a great week.